Alright, we are returning to our ongoing study of Christ revealed in the Old Testament. And we're starting tonight the third and final segment of that study. It's been a a little bit of time since our last segment, so I'll briefly review just to begin what we've covered so far. And then uh, what I want to do tonight is kind of an introductory overview of this third and final segment. So um, what we've established as a foundational principle in our approach to the study is that, you know, the Old Testament, it's, it's a huge document. There's, there's uh, some 39 individual books in the Old Testament, all kinds of different books from history to law to poetry to prophecy and um, some, some other types as well. And in all of that, um, there are many different themes, many different focal points, but there's one foundational theme that really ties all of those 39 books together, and not just those 39 books together as a, as a coherent and, and consistent single communication from God to his people, but ties those 39 books together with the 27 books in the New Testament in a meaningful way, an ultimately meaningful way. And that single theme is Christ himself, the person and work of Christ. And so we all understand that, that uh, the Old Testament in, in a very important way anticipates the arrival of Christ and the New Testament then proclaims and explains what his arrival into this world was all about and what he actually accomplished. But, the, but all of that story that is detailed with great clarity in the New Testament is portrayed for us and displayed for us in very various ways in the Old Testament passages, the Old Testament books. And if you miss that main theme of Christ in, in the various, 39 various books of the Old Testament, and this is true for every single one of the Old Testament books. If you miss that main theme, you've really missed the point of the Old Testament. You've missed, you missed what it's really actually all about. Now, in our study, what we've done is we've divided the concept of Christ revealed in the Old Testament into three segments. The first, we looked at all of the prophecies, which are the, the, the direct proclamations in advance, before they ever happened in history, of what would happen when Christ would enter the world, who he would, would be, what he would be like, and what he would accomplish. And we spent a number of weeks looking at most all of the prophecies. We, we didn't cover every single prophecy, but we covered all of the most significant ones, and I looked at them in some detail. Then our second segment, which uh, was our more recent study, we looked at what uh, theologians have, have identified, even though it's not a Bible word, it's certainly a Bible concept. We looked at what we called Christophanies, uh, which is just a, um, a, a Greek form of a word which describes the Old Testament appearances of Christ. The idea that he had not yet been born as a human being, that was all waiting for the events in Bethlehem, when he entered the world in his incarnation. But prior to that, that doesn't mean that since he hadn't been incarnated as a human being yet, that he had no personal, direct, present relationship with the events of the Old Testament. He actually did. And of course, he appeared at various times in the Old Testament to the people of God and generally speaking, appeared at critical junctures super important moments in redemptive history in order to steer those moments in a specific way in a specific direction. And so we looked, uh, we, we spent a number of weeks looking at all of the Christophanies. So that brings us up to our third and final segment, which are, we're calling types and shadows. And um, let me briefly define those two terms theologically in terms of how they apply to what we're going to be focused on, what we're going to be looking at in Old Testament passages. 
a, a type is simply a, a prophetic symbol. It's a, it's a symbol, but it's one that points forward in history to the arrival of Christ. And each type, in a symbolic way, portrays some specific aspect of either the person of Christ or the work of Christ in advance, but does so, as I said, in a symbolic way. A shadow is simply a type, but it really calls extra emphasis to the idea of only in Christ will we see the fulfillment of what the symbol in the Old Testament was pointing forward to. In the same way that, you know, if you're, if you're walking in, outside in relationship to the sun, with either the sun in front of you or the sun behind you, um, what's going to happen is you're going to have a shadow of you that's cast upon the ground. And uh, you are not the shadow. Uh, you're greater than the shadow. You're more important than the shadow. But the shadow does have a connection to you. And the shadow does relate to you. And the shadow does, for any, any uh, careful observer, the shadow tells something about the one who is casting that shadow. It doesn't tell everything about the one who's casting the shadow. There's no one on the earth that can look at your shadow on the ground and know everything there is to know about you. But what can it tell you, just in a practical, physical sense? It can tell you something about your general shape or your general form. So the idea of shadows in, in a theological sense is, is we're talking about things that occur in a symbolic way in the Old Testament that point forward in time to what they're connected to, which is the person of Christ himself. And uh, I've used this analogy before. I think it's a helpful one. Uh, think of like a, a theater production with live actors on stage. And in a sense, the whole story of redemption, the whole story of the Bible being the various actors that play a role for a particular time on the stage. And at the key moment in the production, here's Christ coming to center stage, but he comes from the wings. He comes from off stage. And before he reaches center stage, before he's actually personally visible, you see because of the lighting, his shadow cast across the stage. And now you can anticipate his arrival and you have kind of a sense because of the shadowing, the pre-shadowing, you have a sense of who it is that's arriving and what he's there to accomplish. And so in a sense, that's what the Lord has done with these types and shadows. The, the shadows, the types, they are not Christ, but they symbolically display him, his, some aspect of his character, his personage, or some aspect of his work. Uh, one um, Bible teacher used, used this a description I thought it would be helpful. It's uh, how many of you have ever heard of uh, visual aids in school? Like recently, we started putting on Sunday morning the outlines up, you know, on display because several of you asked for that uh, the the teaching outline to be visually displayed. If you're listening carefully, you get all the same information, but it's helpful for some people to see it, and some people are more visual learners than they are audible or audio learners. And so think of a type as kind of a theological visual aid that the Lord has provided for us to help us understand things about Christ that we might not get otherwise. All right, now as we dig into this study, I want to alert you to two potential problems or theological dangers that are in our pathway as we're starting down this road of studying the types and shadows in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you an, an acronym for, for these two dangers. The first one is O-H-I-S. Uh, there, there's many Bible teachers and um, even some scholars who have uh, contracted O-H-I-S. What is that as a, as a problem theologically? It's what I'm terming overactive hermeneutical imagination syndrome. Now, what I mean by that is simply um, it is possible once you start down the avenue of 
You've bought into the idea that Christ is present in the Old Testament. You know the prophecies. You recognize the, the Christophanies. But now you're looking for the more subtle elements of what is revealed about Christ in symbol in the Old Testament. And it is possible to find Christ everywhere in the Old Testament, meaning find him even in places in the Old Testament where he is not being symbolically represented, where he is not being highlighted in the way that some people see him highlighted. In other words, attaching symbolic significance to certain elements of the Old Testament that the Lord never intended. So we're going to try to avoid that danger. We're going to try to avoid the danger of being overactive in our in our interpretive imagination. Uh, in the Middle Ages of church history, they're developed, and we're talking about like from the year 1000 maybe to the year 1500, there developed a huge problem with this issue where it became kind of the uh, popular thing among pastors to uh, outdo their fellow pastors by finding more Bible symbols pointing to Christ than anyone else had yet found. And so with that kind of motivation, it is easy to go too far and find things that are not actually intended to be that uh, by the Lord himself. The second danger I'm calling BMS. The first one is O-H-I-S. This is BMS. Now, you wouldn't necessarily be familiar with this, so I want to try to make you familiar. BMS is Bishop Marsh Syndrome. Now, uh, how many of you have ever heard of Bishop Marsh? You probably haven't, and it, you don't need to have heard of him. The only reason I'm even mentioning his name, this was a, this was a pastor and, and Bible scholar back, um, you know, hundreds of years ago now. And uh, the only reason I mention his name is that he proposed a new guideline for the study of types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. And he proposed this new guideline because he was concerned with all of the people that had overactive imaginations and were finding too many symbols when they didn't actually exist. And so he decided, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to scale this way back and we're going to propose a new guideline. And the guideline is this. There, there will be no type of Christ recognized by the, by the Bible scholarship community unless it is specifically named and identified as such by one of the New Testament writers. So, for instance, if the Apostle Paul says it's a type, then we can be confident it's a type. If Peter says it's a type, we can be confident it's a type. If Jesus himself says it's a type, we can certainly be confident that it's a type. But beyond that, if none of them mention something in the Old Testament as being a type, then it's not a type, and you've gone too far with overactive imagination. Now, the problem with that, and and I, I hope to demonstrate this many times throughout the course of our study, is there are many true types of Christ that are found in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that are not specifically mentioned in the New Testament. So I see these as two dangers in the sense of you can go too far in your study of types, and you can go not nearly far enough in your study of types. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to navigate between those two extremes. We're going to try to find together uh, the right balance point and only identify those things as types which actually are, but try to identify all of the most important and significant ones in our study. Now, how are we going to ensure that we're properly navigating? We're going to try to follow the example of those that are most trustworthy in this regard. And so there are two groups that are most trustworthy in regards to finding the right balance point for understanding the types of the Old Testament. One is Christ himself. The other is the apostles. So uh, let's look at Luke chapter 24, where Jesus first taught his disciples about this concept. It's not the first time he ever himself referred to himself as being portrayed or represented in an Old Testament type, but it's the first time he explained the interpretive principle to his disciples. We did read this passage when we first started our study um, in the first introduction to Christ in the Old Testament uh, months ago, 
but it's worth rereading for tonight. So chapter 24 of Luke, and the context here of the passage I'm about to read is, this is one of the appearances of Christ in his resurrection. And this is uh, the appearance on the road to Emmaus, where there are two of his disciples that are walking along the road, and suddenly a third individual appears alongside them. They don't immediately recognize him as Christ, and this leads to an eventual uh, eye-opening experience where they, where the Lord opens their eyes and they're able to recognize that it is him r- risen from the dead, and then uh, he begins to speak to them. And I just want to focus on one line in verse 27 of Luke 24 in which Jesus says this, in beginning with Moses, and and I want you to, if you're one to mark your Bible or to take notation, um, or if you just take side notes, this is the key word to mark, the word all. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in, and again, if you want to emphasize the word all, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, just to be clear, because in our way of categorizing Old Testament books, I mentioned four or five categories earlier tonight uh, as I began the message. Um, In the most basic Jewish way to categorize the Old Testament writings, all of the what eventually became the 39 books of the Old Testament, the most basic way, there there were two different ways And Jesus, in two different places, acknowledges both of these ways. But here he's just focused on the most basic way, which is the Old Testament can basically be divided into two segments, the law and the prophets. And the prophets here isn't just the prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, and and on and on. The, The prophetic books are all of the books outside the first five books of the law, which, of course, are Genesis to Deuteronomy. So when he references in verse 27, beginning with Moses, we're talking about not Moses the person, but the books that Moses was spiritually assigned by the Lord to write down that God revealed to him. So beginning with Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then continuing to all the prophets, which would mean what other books are included in this category besides Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's five of the 39 total books of the Old Testament. How many other books is he now referencing? 34 other books. So the prophets is 34 books. The the law is five books. A total of 39 books. The emphasis he's making is every single book of the Old Testament is telling the same essential story. Yes, each one of the 39 books has its own part of the story to tell, and each one that was inspired by the Lord to write it was given their own assignment on what to focus on, but every one of them was written to tell one underlying main theme story, which is the story of Christ himself. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, Which means what? In the most simple way that we can describe it, he explained to them what was there in those 39 books all along, but they had not previously seen what was really there. They had not seen beneath the surface, in a sense, of the text. And now Jesus himself is explaining the true meaning of all of those 39 books. Now, how long this conversation lasted, how much detail he went into. Uh, I doubt that he did an in-depth study that day through each individually one of the 39 books. I'm sure he chose representative, I'm confident anyway, that he chose representative passages and examples of how he is revealed in the Old Testament. But for our sake, the takeaway is... Any one of the 39 books of the Old Testament that you open up, you should, we should expect to find Christ there. And we have been finding him there in the prophecies that we've cataloged of his coming. And we have found him there in the Christophanies, his 
Old Testament appearances. And now what we're going to be looking for is all of the symbolic ways that he's present and portrayed. So he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now skip down a little further, a little deeper into the same chapter. And we'll pick up again in verse 44 now. Now he's not just with the two disciples, he's with the assembled disciples. And in verse 44, this is a second or another appearance, a subsequent appearance. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, meaning before he went to the cross and before he died and before he rose from the dead. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm, I'm going to rehearse something I previously already taught to you. I've, I taught it to you then. The implication is, but you didn't really get it. You didn't really fully understand it. And I don't think he's rebuking them here as if, you know, you, you didn't grasp what you should have grasped. I think he's fully well aware that they were at that point incapable of fully grasping what he's now about to rehearse for them. Something's changed, though. He's risen from the dead. They have a different measure of grace in this moment, and we're about to see how he gives that different measure of grace to them. But they have a different measure of grace to grasp it, to comprehend it, and to understand what it is that he had previously taught them. I just want to highlight the fact that throughout his three years of public ministry and, and targeted specific and focused ministry to the disciples, he's already been talking to them about where he is found in the Old Testament. So he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and now he adds a third category, which is really included in the two categories that he had previously mentioned, but he gets more specific now. Everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is what I mean by now they are receiving a different greater measure of grace than they had available to them even as the 12 closest disciples of the Lord prior to his death on the cross and his resurrection now the Lord grants them it's just interesting why we could all ask the question why didn't he grant them this during the three years of his spending time with them before it's because the timing is now all connected to his death and resurrection so the, the fullness of the experience had to wait for the fullness of what he accomplished. So he says he opened their minds, or, or Luke describes he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And he goes on to give Luke's version of what we now call the, the Great Commission following that. All right, so with that, what we see clearly is Jesus is locked in to the concept that he fills the pages of the Old Testament. And for our our sake, we have to buy into the idea that we're meant to see him there, but just like they needed to have their minds open to understand these things, we need a similar grace from the Lord. And um, it's it's not a... It's not a study topic that can be naturally discerned or naturally discovered. It takes spiritual grace in order to see it clearly and accurately and to follow the the symbolic uh, themes and threads that are woven throughout the fabric of the Old Testament in the way that we hope to. All right, so one more passage uh, with Jesus as the focal point as the teacher. Uh, Let's turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. So the passages I just read in Luke were Jesus teaching the interpretive principles connected to our study. Here in John 3, I just want to give you one example. And this is not the only time Jesus does this in his teaching ministry. Once we've gone through this study, 
together of the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. I hope it will unlock even a greater level of awareness on your part as you reread the four Gospels and are now going to be able to see even more quickly and clearly all of the many connection points between the events that actually happened in the life and ministry and work of Christ um, to the portrayals of those things in symbol that are found throughout the Old Testament. But this is just one example and one of the great ones in which Jesus did this. So the, the setting here, we're not going to read the whole section. The setting is this is the visit late at night between Nicodemus, who was one of the leading Pharisees of the day, and Jesus. A, a private conversation between the two of them. And Jesus ends up redirecting. Nicodemus comes with his own agenda, and Jesus ends up redirecting him by talking to him about the necessity of being born again in order to be able to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and in, to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And then in the middle of this uh, redirection, Jesus introduces a connection between himself and one of the Old Testament types. We will study this one in greater detail when we get to it eventually in our study, but I want to use this as an example of how Jesus brought, brings it up to Nicodemus. So let's read from, um, I think we'll start reading in verse 11. Remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And here he's, the you is, uh, it's a plural you. It's not an individual you. He's not saying everybody else is open and receptive, but you, Nicodemus, you're the one individual in Israel who has a hard and closed heart. Nicodemus actually, among the Pharisees, had the most open heart, of all of the Pharisees. So he's, he's using a plural you to describe Nicodemus as part of a group, a, a current religious leadership group represented by the Pharisees. So you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then verse 14, Jesus, in order to drive his point home about the distinction between earthly things and heavenly things, he references a very well-known to Nicodemus, very famous event in Israel's history during the exodus between Egypt and the Promised Land. And now Jesus is going to highlight it as a type, a symbolic event it was a real event. It actually happened in Israel's history. But what he's going to reveal to Nicodemus, whether Nicodemus fully gets it yet or not, doesn't matter. The point is he reveals that in that real event of history, there is another layer to that event, a spiritual meaning event, a symbolic meaning to that event that is ultimately pointing forward to him, to Christ. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's the intro to the, what is today considered to be the most famous and well-known verse in all of the New Testament, John 3.16. But this introduction of a type is the intro to, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what's the type? And again, we'll get into this in more detail when we eventually get there, but this is a circumstance when in their journey through the wilderness for 40 years, Israel following the lead of Moses and Moses following the lead of the, the pillar of fire and cloud as the Lord is leading them through the wilderness, they came into a circumstance where the children of Israel were as they commonly did in the journey, for no valid reason, they were grumbling and complaining about their circumstances. Grumbling and complaining about how things were not in the wilderness journey as, as good as they had been for them in Egypt and as good as they, in their minds, they should be. And at a certain point here in this event, 
this circumstance. The Lord has finally heard enough. Uh, those of you who have experience as parents, I think, can probably uh, could probably relate to what was going on in the Lord's heart at that moment in Israel's complaining and grumbling, which is, you know, you've all heard your kids complain at one time or another, but have you ever reached a saturation point as a parent where, okay, I've, I've been listening to you complaining and I'm drawing a line here and I'm saying, that's it. That's enough. No more complaining. I'm not getting much of a response here. Have you had that experience as a parent? Okay, so when the Lord reaches that point, it's, you know, as a parent, you might, if they're young, your children are young, you might spank them at that point to teach them a lesson about not grumbling and complaining. If they're older, you might take away some privilege or you might find some other way to reach their heart through some uh, circumstantial discomfort or pain in their life, some loss of value in their life. What the Lord does is he sends what are called in the text fiery serpents. And they're only mentioned or described in, and this is going back to old King James poetic language. They're only mentioned as being fiery, not because the serpents were literally on fire. It's because they were poisonous. And this, this we don't know how many they were, there were, but you're talking about... Uh, a huge community of Israelites in the wilderness and these poisonous serpents uh, come into the camp and they begin to bite the people and the people begin to drop dead because of the poison of the serpents. And while this is happening, Moses is concerned, of course, that the Lord's judgment, because he recognizes recognizes as the Lord's judgment, the Lord's judgment is going to Um, overwhelm the community of Israel because he understands, Moses does, they actually deserve what's happening to them. But out of compassion and concern for the people, he uh, runs and and takes a pole and has a bronze serpent attached to the top of the pole and he lifts it up. And all of this is by the merciful direction of the Lord in the crisis moment And whoever in the camp of Israel looks at the brass serpent on the pole is suddenly immune to the bite of the the poisonous serpent. And they are saved or delivered from that circumstance. So this is what Jesus is referring to. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He connects that pole and that serpent on the pole to him being lifted up. It hasn't happened yet. He's referring to a near future event. He must be lifted up, which is going to happen about three years after this meeting with Nicodemus in which Jesus is lifted up, not to heaven, but lifted up between heaven and earth, lifted up on the cross. So this Moses and the bronze serpent and the pole event is a type, a symbolic portrayal of an aspect of the work of Christ, which is his sacrificial death on the cross. And again, we'll revisit this, but why a serpent? Why didn't he lift a lamb on top of the pole? Because we normally think of Jesus in terms of being symbolized by a lamb. And he is in other New Old Testament passages and in New Testament declaration, he is connected symbolically to a lamb. But why not put a lamb on the pole? He puts a serpent on the pole because the serpent in their minds would, would take their understanding all the way back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden in which the serpent led through his deceptive influence to what we identify as the fall of humanity And the ruination of human history because of his influence. And all of this was being portrayed as this is what's causing the downfall of Israel. They're still being, uh, they're still susceptible to the same demonic and devilish influences that have affected humanity from the very beginning of human history. But 
the death of Christ on the cross is somehow going to resolve that problem. And, and again, we'll, we'll draw all of those connections even more clearly when we eventually get there. So I just wanted to show you this example to show you that even Jesus himself, in the course of his regular teachings, this one just being a, if you can imagine, a private one-on-one teaching from Jesus to Nicodemus, but he's using typology. He's using his connection to Old Testament events in symbolic connection in order to drive home the point of the gospel message to a man that up until this moment didn't get it, didn't understand it, had his eyes closed to it. But this is going to be how the Lord is going to um, open his eyes to reveal the truth to him. Now, let's, I said we're going to follow in our navigating between the two problems of going too far and not going far enough in our interpretation of types. We're going to follow the example of the Lord Jesus, which we've just laid out. We're also going to follow the example of the apostles. So let me give you four examples of apostolic reference to types. Uh, First one is, like we did with Jesus, a teaching passage, not so much a specific reference to a specific type. And this is found in the book of Colossians. Just like Luke 24 is the most important passage in the entire Bible to guide our understanding in the study of Bible types. This is the most important passage of all of the apostolic writings to guide our understanding in a similar way. Colossians chapter 2, from the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and we'll read in verse 16. Now, just a brief background so that you understand why he chose to make this point in the middle of of the book of Colossians. Paul is not doing a study on Christ in the Old Testament here. He's correcting a serious problem in the life of the church in Colossae. And the serious problem was there were false teachers that had arisen to some prominence in the assembly and in the church, and they were beginning to lead the true believers down the wrong pathway of understanding. And one of the things they were being misguided on is the connection between certain Old Testament passages that had to do with certain Old Testament concerns, and they were applying them in the wrong way to New Testament Christian life. And so... Paul is going to correct that misunderstanding, but it now is going to help us in terms of our study of types. So verse 16, chapter 2, Colossians. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. He's talking about the fact that these false teachers were passing judgment on the members of the church in matters of food and drink, not in a health concern, He's not saying, you guys are eating wrong and it's unhealthy for you. You need to eat more healthy. That's not what they were talking about. He's talking about the spiritual aspects of eat, eating and drinking. The spiritual concerns that are folded into what we refer to now as the Old Testament food laws. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival. He's not talking about, hey... Um, you shouldn't go to, what's that, uh, what's that festival that still goes on? Oh, the Renaissance Fair. How many of you have heard of the Renaissance Fair? Everybody dresses up like it's the Middle Ages, and there's some interesting things that happen there, and then there's some uh, morally questionable things that happen there as well. Um, exercise your own discernment, now that I've mentioned it, whether you ever choose to attend. But he's not talking about, or with regard to like a Renaissance festival, He's not talking about that. He's talking about the Old Testament festival laws, what we call the feast days, the seven great feasts that the Lord appointed, the celebrations that the Lord appointed for his people. So don't let anyone pass judgment on you in regards to food and drink, food laws, in regards to the the set of seven Old Testament festival days, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Those things had to do with 
the spiritual purpose behind the calendar setup in the Old Testament law. In the law of Moses, there is a, an appointed calendar to be followed. And all of those things, the food laws, the festivals, the calendar itself in the Old Testament, Paul is about to say, those all had to do with Christ. But these false teachers completely obliviously missed that, and now they've just focused on the letter of the law details, and they're legalistically applying them to the church in a way that they were never intended to be lived out. So he goes on to say in verse 17, by way of explanation, and this is where we get the second of our two terms in our title, types and shadows of Christ. These are a shadow of the things to come. He's, Paul's not saying these things still haven't come. He's saying when they were revealed, they were shadowing, pre-shadowing things to come. But they have now come because the one that they were connected to, the one casting the shadow, is Christ himself. By way of saying this, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's just another way of saying, using the imagery I gave of, of walking in relation, outside in relationship to the sun, there's the shadow that I cast, and there's me that cast the shadow. Which one has more substance, the shadow or me? Me, obviously. The, the, the body that's casting the shadow is more significant, more substantive than the shadow itself. It doesn't mean the shadow doesn't matter or has nothing to communicate to us. It just means that keep in mind as you're studying the shadow, they're all pointing to the body that's casting that shadow. And in this case, all of these symbols we're going to be studying point to Christ. And I think we'll be able to do a good job together of, of drawing the right conclusions about how these shadows point forward to him. All right, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. So we've got now the explanation of Jesus giving us principles of interpretation in regards to types and shadows. We've got the explanation of Paul giving us additional principles to add to our interpretive framework. And now we're going to look like we did with Jesus at an example of Paul himself using a reference to Christ represented in a symbolic type of Old Testament things. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll start in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Okay, Paul's writing to brothers, which implies he's writing in his mind to believers, those who truly know the Lord, those who are true members of the body of Christ. And he says to them as the introduction to what he's about to teach them, I do not want you to be unaware of what I'm about to teach you, which implies what? It is possible to be unaware of these things. You can live your entire Christian life and never study the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, but your spiritual understanding and therefore your relationship with the Lord would only be diminished by not understanding the things we're going to be studying. They're not essential to be saved. They're simply essential to reach for maturity of understanding about what God has revealed and how it's meant to have its own shaping influence in your growth in the Lord. And just like Paul doesn't want, didn't want the Corinthians to be unaware, I don't want us to be unaware of these things. And most of you are more aware at this point, I believe, than the Corinthians were before Paul introduces what he's about to say, because we've talked about these things and studied some of this before, but we've never done it to the extent that we're about to. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and how, now he's referring to an earlier time in history, and he's specifically referencing, again, the Exodus, just like Jesus was in, in um, John 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus. Not all types are found in the Exodus events, but a, a, a ton of them are. Why? Because it's, it's 
as Israel looked back on their past, if you asked any Israelite of the day, what's the most important event that's ever happened in Israel's history? They would say without hesitation, the Exodus. That's it. That's the most, it redefined us as, it, it changed us, transformed us from a, an affiliation of a family of 12 tribes into a holy nation for God's great kingdom purposes. And so we can expect that there would be uh, many references to the work of Christ in those events. So Paul's about to talk about some of them. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, those that lived during the Exodus, were all under the cloud. What cloud is he talking about? Pillar of fire and cloud that led them through the wilderness. Doesn't mean they were directly under the cloud all the time. The cloud was usually during the day when they're traveling, it was usually in front of them, but it was also positioned between themselves and the sun to give them shade during the day. So in that sense, they're under the cloud. And then at night, they would camp and the tabernacle would be erected in the center of Israel's camp and the cloud would be positioned directly over the tabernacle and they're surrounding that cloud. So in that sense, they're under the cloud not directly under it, because they weren't allowed inside the tabernacle, but in that kind of relationship to it. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What sea did they all pass through? The Red Sea. Not through the water of the sea, but through where the sea was located, as the waters, of course, were divided. And all were baptized into Moses. Now, unless you've read this specific passage, as Paul's describing it, using a a perspective of recognizing types, you would not necessarily have seen the crossing of the Red Sea as a portrayal of baptism. Because how many of the Israelites got wet crossing the Red Sea? None of them. It's the grace of God that they didn't get wet. Nevertheless, Paul interprets that event as they were as good as baptized. They were just baptized into Moses because he was the leader at that moment of history. He was the prophet. He was was the, the savior figure that God had appointed. And in the cloud and in the sea. So they were baptized in these three elements. They were baptized into Moses and, and we'll talk about all this as we go forward. They were baptized in the cloud and they were baptized in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. That, of course, is a reference to manna, which in another passage in John chapter 6, Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus grabs the manna event and compares it as a type to himself. He said, you ate, you know, our fathers ate bread from heaven that God gave in the wilderness through Moses under the leadership of Moses. But I'm telling you, I'm the living bread. And so he connects that bread event to his life and ministry and accomplishments. So all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What was the spiritual drink that they had? Was it some kind of like special angelic Kool-Aid? It was water. Water from a rock, which he immediately references. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. Spiritual rock. How many of you have ever encountered a spiritual rock in your travels and hiking adventures in the world? None of us, but they did. They all drank from the spiritual rock. And what's interesting about this rock is, It's not just located in one place in the Sinai Desert. This is a rock that followed them. Moving rock, walking rock, traveling rock. And the rock, and this is where Paul really nails the point. And what's interesting, it's just a teaching technique. He chose, he could have developed every single detail that he mentions from verse 1 to where I'm reading now. But he chose the last detail to just give one single point of spiritual connectivity but every single detail he mentions prior to that has its own spiritual connection to the life and ministry of Christ he says and the rock was Christ 
Does that mean, and I asked this question when we were doing the Christophany study, I'll ask it again. Does that mean that Jesus, during the Old Testament Exodus time period, incarnated for a time as a rock? No. No. He never became a rock, but he was portraying himself in symbolic connection to a rock. How did he do so? He literally stood on top of the rock that was split which brought forth living water that was enough water to satisfy the thirst of the at minimum of three million people of, of Israel that were traveling through the wilderness when there was no other water source available to them in many parts of their journey. The rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So what does that mean, the rock was Christ? It means... That rock was a type of Christ. And that's going to be one of the ones that we'll study in more detail when we eventually get there. All right, two more examples. First uh, Peter chapter 2. I wanted to give you examples of three different apostles making typological reference to Christ from Old Testament passages. This is Peter's, one of Peter's great examples. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll read from verse 4. He's talking about salvation, the experience of salvation. And in verse 4, he now shifts, still talking about salvation, but he now shifts into a reference of typology. One aspect of which applies to us. Not to Christ. But the other aspect applies to Christ and not to us. And the two are connected. As you'll see in the, in the, in the type. Verse 4. Uh, 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to him. He's talking about coming to Christ in what we now call salvation. As you come to him. A living stone. Him a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So, of course, we know the story. We know the story of Christ. We know the story of how he presented himself to Israel, but was rejected by the leadership of Israel. And then the, the, the population followed the influence of the leaders. They all rejected him. They called for his crucifixion. And even though he was rejected by the people that should never have rejected him, all the time in the sight of God, he remained chosen and precious among all stones on the face of the earth. Verse four, I mean verse five. Now the shift goes from the focus on Christ being represented by a stone to us being represented by stones. You yourselves, like living stones, he was the first living stone, and now we are re-identified as similar living stones to him, but only by our connection to him. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes the Old Testament, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone, here he quotes a different portion of the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and now he references a third Old Testament passage, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. All right, so in this short passage, Peter packs a whole teaching series into just a few verses. I don't have Peter's skills, so I don't pack a whole teaching series into just a few minutes. You know, I actually do the whole series. So what is he packing? He, he starts with the imagery of stones, but calls them different than any stone that's known on the face of the earth. How many stones, naturally speaking, 
geologically speaking, are properly described as living stones? The answer is none, because stones are made of what we call inorganic material. Therefore, they can possibly have or bear life. They are dead substances. But so what he's referencing stones, but he calls them living stones. So immediately he's shifting your perspective from the natural to the spiritual. And he says, first, Christ is the first living stone. And we are living stones by our connected relationship to him. And then he begins to build off of that imagery of stones in describing the structure that those stones are arranged in order to build. What structure is he referencing? The temple of God during the days of Solomon. He's talking about the house of God as the temple constructed by non-living stones. And his point is that entire Old Testament, critically important, central, most important structure in the history of Israel, that whole thing was a type. And it amazingly functions as a double layered type, a type of Christ and a type of his people, his saved and redeemed people. And then he expands the typology even further in verse uh, five, when he begins to reference those that serve within that structure, a holy priesthood. And so there's typological connection to the the God-ordained-in-the-law-of-Moses role of the priests that served within the temple. And then he expands it to a third level and begins to talk about spiritual sacrifices that are offered within that structure. And there certainly was a set, a God-ordained, very specific set of sacrifices in the law of Moses. And now he's connecting all of that to us. Even though there's no temple in the city of Jerusalem today, and even though there is no Levitical priesthood that any longer is an identifiable functional body of priests, and even though there is no longer any sacrificial system, Peter takes all of that and applies it to us and to Christ, but does so in a symbolic, connected way. This is the study of types. And we will, again, get into details about that later. Okay, one last apostolic example. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. How John, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, chooses to open his gospel. Different than any of the three other gospels. This is why John's gospel is even given a different kind of designation. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as synoptic gospels, meaning that they're basically, in a synopsis, they're telling the story of Jesus from beginning to end. John's story, his gospel account, doesn't start with Bethlehem and the the incarnate entrance of Jesus into the world in Bethlehem. Where does John's story start? John's story starts in the beginning of human history, but he clearly and immediately connects it to Christ. In the beginning, which is how the book of Genesis starts, in the beginning. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John now changes it, but changes it now to show what was really going on that is not as obvious in the Genesis account that now makes it more obvious. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light here is a reference to the very first words that God spoke that started what we now call history. Those words, you could really, as I've emphasized before, you could boil it down to one singular word in in the original Hebrew text. 
It's the word light, but light as a verb. Light as a command, not just as a thing that's already in existence, but God speaking the word that's now translated in Genesis, let there be light. He really says, kind of like if we were to use notation, the word light with an exclamation point after it, which then causes creation to begin to spring into existence. And John and We just don't have time. Paul does the same exact thing with that Genesis passage in the book of 2 Corinthians and connects it to Christ. The light in Genesis that began the original creation is as a type symbolically connected to Christ who is the beginning not of the original creation, though he was that too, but the emphasis and focus now is Christ is the beginning of a new creation. All right, so those are our examples. Uh, let me just give you a real brief, I'll take one minute to do this. I'll give you kind of a, uh, a preview of where we're heading. There are different ways that Bible teachers, Bible scholars make subcategories of the different types that are in the Old Testament. Some people say, well, there's two categories of types. Some say there's three, some say there's four. I, I, you know, in my own study, I, I just... I've come up with more than that, and I don't think I'm off base in doing this. I've come up with seven categories of types and shadows. So I'll take credit for it, but I'll also take any criticism that comes with it. If you see any problem with it, let me know. Here are the seven categories of types and shadows we'll be studying. We're going to study Christ symbolically represented in key people of the Old Testament. We're going to see Christ symbolically represented in key roles of the Old Testament, Christ represented in key structures, more than just the temple that I was just talking about, and Christ represented in specific things, Christ represented in special redemptive events, Christ represented in the law, and Christ represented in special patterns that God establishes by his intervention in the world. So for people, we'll be studying people like Adam, Abel, Noah, Melchizedek, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, Solomon, Elisha, and maybe some others as well. Those are the main ones. For roles, we'll be studying the roles of prophet, priest, king, similar to how uh, Steve emphasized those in uh, a segment, a recent segment of his theology, but we'll have to revisit that. Prophet, priest, and king, Messiah, uh, Christ is the suffering servant, in the Old Testament, Christ is the son of Abraham, Christ is the son of David, each one having its own symbolic meaning, and then Christ, uh, primarily in the book of Ruth, revealed as the kinsman redeemer. Uh, our study of structures, we're going to look at the Garden of Eden, we're going to look at Noah's Ark, we're going to look at the tabernacle, and we're going to look at the temple. Uh, things, we'll look at the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, we'll look at uh, a log, We'll look at the bronze serpent that I referenced earlier, uh, manna, Aaron's rod, a ladder that Jacob saw in a dream, uh, the rock that followed Israel through the wilderness, as we talked about from Corinthians, um, the stone in the dream that Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar that struck the great statue in his dream, um, the cornerstone of the temple, as we read in Peter, the lamb, the one of the great... Um, one of the great uh, Old Testament types of Christ. The, uh, he's represented as a star. He's represented as a scepter. He's represented as the sun at the center of our solar system. Um, then events. We'll look at the, the original creation and all the connections to the new creation. We'll look at the flood, but specifically the aftermath of the flood. And we'll look at the Passover, of course, the Red Sea crossing, the, the 40 years in the wilderness, the Exodus events, and then, of course, um, Jonah being swallowed by the fish. Uh, laws, we're going to, there's so much in the law, we could literally be months just studying the types in the law, but I'm going to break it down into three main sections. We'll look at the set of God-ordained sacrifices as they point to Christ the set of the seven great feast days. We'll look at the calendar as God 
ordained it to be for Israel and how that points to Christ. And then for patterns, we're looking at things like the seventh day Sabbath that was established at the end of the original week of creation, covenant marriage as a a pointing forward to our new covenant marriage relationship to Christ. And then as I've taught before, but it's been some time, the recurring pattern of one door in each one of the great structures that symbolically point to Christ in the Old Testament. All right, so that's where we're heading. Um, You can join me in praying for our study. It's a rich one. It's a deep one. There's a lot there. Um, But as I said, what I want to do is I want to avoid those two dangers. I don't want to make too much of what's not actually there. Neither do I want to make too little of what is there and should be uh, studied and understood. So uh, God bless you and look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next Thursday night.